Well, it's always something to look forward to every Christmas season, to be able to hear our choir. I confess I'm one of those uh, people who start playing Christmas music quite early. Uh, I think we all enjoy it. We enjoy the stores and hearing the songs and uh, going through. And of course, the retailers, they know you enjoy it. And so they, they tend to play it quite a lot. In fact, studies show, they're very aware of this, that upon hearing Christmas music, your wallets loosen up, the money begins to flow, and so they, they play it as much as they can. There's a tendency to play Christmas music earlier and earlier every season, right? It's a result of, uh, or I should say it results in a phenomenon that we sometimes call or is known as the Christmas creep which is not the guy on the corner in the Santa suit that's a little too friendly. That's the tendency of music to creep earlier and earlier in the season, right? It sometimes starts even around Halloween these days, Christmas music being played all around us. It's not always been that way. In fact, there is no particular music that was associated with Christmas for the first 12 or 1300 years of the church. There was no such thing as a Christmas season. It wasn't really until the Middle Ages that you started even having the idea of a Christmas season. And it was at that time that people began to sing what they called carols, which were sort of sung, uh, songs sung around in circles with religious themes, usually associated with some sort of dance. The first documentation of these carols doesn't come until 1426 when someone mentions the name of a carol in association with Christmas. Eventually, these carols were taken up by wassailers who were basically beggars going around and asking for benevolence at people's door, but they found it a little bit more productive to sing the Christmas songs, and so they took up the idea of singing around and dancing in circles as they went door to door. They were onto something pretty early that the retailers wouldn't learn till later, right? That loosens up the money. So these wassailers would sing Christmas carols going door to door, house to house, begging for money along the way. And so the tradition of Christmas carols began to take root in England. That is until the parliament, led by the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell, prohibited the celebration of Christmas. That's right. 1645, the, uh, the Puritans, the uh, rump parliament, I think they call it, banned the actual celebration of Christmas throughout all of England and Christmas music came to an end for a while. Until 15 years later, Charles II came to the throne and the celebrations were once more taken up. But still, most of the songs that we even sing today, the ones that we're familiar with, weren't even around until maybe about 170 years ago. 1833 was the first time you could ever find something like a Christmas hymnal or Christmas hymns put into print. And those songs became increasingly popular, at least some of them. The songs we sing today really are all relatively new in the last 50 years. Top five list of Christmas songs begins, number one, Merry Christmas to everybody. Number two, do they know it's Christmas? 
Number three, fairy tale in New York. You recognize that? That's actually the British. That's the starting of the British top five. <clears throat> the top five American songs. You might know these a little bit better. Number five, uh, White Christmas. Number four, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Number three, Winter Wonderland. Number two, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And number one, the Christmas song, which sort of begins chestnuts roasting by an open fire. It's interesting that three of those five songs were actually written by Jews, people who don't even celebrate Christmas. It's no wonder then that Christ is virtually absent in any of the top five Christmas songs. But today I want to turn your attention to another Christmas song. I want to take you back to the very first Christmas song ever written. Although it's not one that most people think of, it's the very best place for us to gather our thoughts about Christmas. It's actually the first song that was ever sung about the birth of Christ, and it was sung by his mother. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 1 in verse 39. Luke 1, 39, and we'll read all the way down to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town in Judea, excuse me, Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The very first Christmas song. You can see it probably marked off in your Bibles by indentation. It's traditionally known as Mary's Magnificat, which is really a name that arises out of the Latin Vulgate, the, the standard translation for the church for so many years. It begins with Magnificat Anima Mea Duminum. Magnificat. It's a word that in Latin translates the Greek word megalune, which we translate into English magnify. It literally speaks of enlarging something. And what it's talking about is how the the place in Mary's heart, she might want to say it this way, is being expanded for the Lord. She's enlarging the space or the place 
that she gives to the Lord in her heart. I love this quote by Alexander McLaren. He says, We magnify God when we take into our vision some fragment more of the complete circle of His essential greatness. The intended effect of all His dealings is that we should think more nobly, that is, more worthily of Him. That's what this song's all about. It's all about Mary magnifying the Lord. It's all about her expanding the space that she gives in her heart to Him, expanding her concept of His worthiness and His greatness and His attributes. It's a song that's always been recognized by its poetic beauty, its literary beauty. It's been studied from all kinds of angles. But of course, the beauty is really in the message. This is Mary's response to the Christmas story. This is the way that she responds to the understanding and the knowledge of Christ coming to the earth the way that He did. This is what she got out of Christmas. And no better place for us then to frame our minds for Christmas than to look at this hymn of Mary, which breaks down into four stanzas, each of them emphasizing a separate manifestation of God's mercy. Four stanzas of Mary's hymn that celebrate God's mercy in four unique ways. First of all, you see the delight of God's servant. The delight of God's servant. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He's looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She begins with a a praise, a celebration of God's grace in her life personally, celebrating Him, first of all, she says, as her Savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's sort of the typical language, the typical biblical language that someone would use whose only hope for salvation is divine grace. She is employing, in other words, the language of a sinner who sees her need for salvation. No sense here of any sort of immaculate birth for Mary. No sense here of a sinlessness, a special place among humanity. She was no less a sinner than any of the rest of us. Or to say it another way, she was as in much need of a Savior as all the rest of us. And so she's rejoicing in God, first of all, as her Savior, and then second of all, as her glory. She's rejoicing, she says in verse 48, because God has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. His salvation, in other words, wasn't just covering over her sins, forgiving them, But it was also, she says, in showing special favor. He wasn't just putting up with her. She says he was pouring out on her this enormous grace. The point's made even dramatic, more dramatic by consideration of who Mary is, or we might say who she isn't, because she's a nobody, right? I mean, this is this is somebody who was a Forgotten girl from a forgotten village on a forgotten corner of Israel. She's referring to her low social estate when she says "My the humble estate of his servant. She's talking about her low social position. And she's saying essentially, look, I'm the last person on earth that God should have paid attention to. 
I'm the last person that God should have taken thought of. When I think about the grand scheme of all the people who are doing all the great things out there in the world, all the leaders, all the movers and shakers, I'm the last person that really should come on God's scope, God's radar. The last person God should have paid attention to, and yet He did. And this is why Mary can't get over in her heart what's happening. This is why she magnifies the Lord in her heart. God has been good to me. And I don't deserve it. That's her song. Now we might judge Mary differently. We've had a tradition in Christianity of exalting her. Thinking of her in so high esteem. People begin to imagine sometimes even that she's supposed to be worshipped. Here she is, not asking for worship, and in no way thinking she could ever deserve it. In fact, she's amazed that she would have God's attention. She knew clearly her need for a Savior. She knew clearly her need for salvation. She knew clearly that she could never do anything that would deserve this kind of favor. We might imagine that she was worthy of it, but she knew better. She knew that when she stood before God, she deserved nothing. And that is why she's amazed. This is the way anybody has to approach God. Doesn't matter if it's you. Doesn't matter if it's a disciple. Doesn't matter if it's Mary. This is the way anybody has to approach God. I mean, Jesus told a parable right over in Luke 18. He talks about two people who went into the synagogue to pray. And one of them was up front praying a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you, God. That I'm not like other people, swindlers and, and uh, idolaters or adulterers, whatever it might be. That was his prayer of thanksgiving that he offered to the Lord. And then there was another man, he says, at the back who wouldn't even lift up his, his eyes to look up. He just beat his chest all the time. And he said, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's the man who went home. Connected with God, justified is the way he said it. That's the way everybody has to approach God. That's the way everybody has to approach God. This is the way that Mary comes. She comes exemplifying Jesus' point here. She comes in absolute amazement that God would have anything to do with her. At all. That's the song of this blessed servant. That's the delight of of God's servant. But the second stanza takes us to a maybe a more interesting point, which is the defense of God's holy name. She sort of connects now her experience with what the Bible says about God. She connects her experience with what is revealed about God in Scripture. And she begins this stanza in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Great things, she says. Great things. Now, it's really amazing coming from the lips of this young girl because at this point in her life, you'd be hard-pressed to convince anyone that God had done one great thing for her. I mean, here she is. She's had an angelic visitation, certainly. She's been told by the Lord a promise Certainly. I mean, but beyond that, really, 
Here is a girl whose life has been incredibly disrupted with an unexpected pregnancy, a child who certainly has a promise from the Lord but hasn't even been born yet, and what awaits her ahead is nothing but ridicule and shame and suspicion and hardship, all of this stuff that lies ahead before she ever really realizes any of the greatness of what the Lord's going to do for her. But you'll notice when she celebrates the Lord, she doesn't say, praise God, He's going to do great things for me. What does she say? They're as good as already done. As good as already done. This is, some people think of it as a prophetic aorist, a sort of, a sort of a, a aspect in the Greek verb that sort of captures everything past, present, and future. But she speaks about it in this sense of completeness. Here he is, she is, about to have a baby with no father. Convinced in her own heart, of course, by angelic visitation, that this was something done by the power of the Holy Spirit, but hard-pressed, I'm sure, to convince many other people of that. Facing slander and mockery and isolation and misunderstanding. What great things has the Lord done for her yet? But she's praising Him in advance. In advance. Not for what He's done, but for what He will do. She's praising God for His goodness. In spite of the fact that there's so much hardship that she's still going to have to go through. To get to those promises. And yet she says in verse 50. His mercy. Is for all those. Who fear him. From generation to generation. She is confident. She's praising the Lord for his mercy. Believing. Trusting that his mercy will eventually. Evidence itself. In her life. As it will for anyone. Anyone. Who trusts him. This is exactly. Back in verse 45. You'll notice this is exactly what Elizabeth identified as the grand virtue in Mary's life. She says in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the great virtue of Mary's life. It's the trust, you see. It's the trust in the Lord. I mean, at this point, she is voluntarily submitting her reputation, her good name to the Lord because she believed in the holiness of God's name. She's submitting her reputation and her name to the Lord because she believed in the holiness of God's name. The Lord promised to remember the lowly, the contrite, the humble, and Mary is rejoicing that he'll do just that. And someday, although she's a nobody, she believes the Lord will pour out favor on her. She's going to have a child. It's a mystery to her how this is all going to be accomplished. No one's really explained to her how this child who couldn't even find an inn to be born in at his birth is going to turn out to be a king. In fact, the scripture goes on to say, that he will pierce even Mary's own heart. There's all kinds of things that Mary doesn't know and she's still going to have to go through. 
But she praises God already because she trusts in Him. You see, so many people wait for some blessing, some evidence, some reason to compel them to praise God. I mean, they feel like somehow the ball's in God's court and they need to see some movement by God in their life, some big, magnificent change in their life before they'll finally come to the table and praise Him. Their attitude is towards God, basically, you know, what have you done for me lately? That wasn't Mary's attitude. So there's so much confidence that the Lord will be true to His Word that she speaks about those things as if they're already done and by the way, that's the way the Old Testament prophets, that's the way every great saint has always spoken of the Lord. They've always written in the past tense of the things the Lord will do in the future because they're as good as done in their minds. So here she is praising God because she says He shows favor from generation to generation to those who are contrite in heart and fear the Lord. Psalm 103 says, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Mary understood that. The Lord's promised in His Word that He will pour out His loving kindness to you, to all who trust Him. Mary thinks about how the Lord's honoring this. It leads her to reflect on His promise. He doesn't forget His mercy never dries up. It never ends. And she says, holy is His name. She will not allow anyone, anyone to discredit God's name for promises yet to be fulfilled when she knows that they're coming. Third stanza leads us to the description of God's ways. Now she's getting into the details of exactly what she trusts about God. And she basically does it in a set of contrasts. There's a moral contrast. How he scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, she says. Speaking about the arrogance of people's hearts, she says God is not in the work of, of confirming that over the long term. She says God is not just interested in the humble, but He takes an interest in the proud to scatter them, to frustrate their efforts, to frustrate their life, to lead them to roadblock after roadblock. He'll do this, she says. Not only that, secondly, a social contrast that the oppressors are contrasted here with the oppressed. She says, God brings down the rulers from their thrones and exalts those who are humble. And he's always done this, whether it's taking a little shepherd boy that was forgotten by his family and forgotten by his nation and set aside as being pretty useless for any purpose and raises him up to be the greatest king in all Israel's history. Or whether she takes an outcast, someone who was a murderer and cast out into the desert wandering around with a few sheep and a few Bedouin for 40 years and raises them up a man by the name of Moses to become the greatest leader in Israel's history or whether she takes a little teenage boy who was ripped away from his family and carried off to a distant land put into some sort of mind-numbing program but because of his faithfulness eventually raises him up 
and makes him the third highest leader in Babylon, preparing the way even for the release of the children of Israel, Daniel. Obviously, there is Jesus himself. This has to be the the center of the Christmas story. Here is jealous Herod with all of his rage and power looking to destroy this baby and humble Christ who winds up being the ones that we winds up being the one that we sing songs about today and Herod's completely forgotten. Mary says this is what God does over and over again. Thirdly, Mary describes God's ways in an economic contrast. He fills the hungry with good things and sends away the rich empty-handed. Speaking of those who have money for food and those who don't, she's saying this is what God does. He provides, He supplies, He fills, and those who think that they're filled without Him will be found empty. What's Mary saying? She took the message of Christmas, is overwhelmed by it, the sending of a Savior in human flesh, the sending of Him in such a way as to thwart all the power that the world seeks and reward the humble. All that leads her to her fourth stanza, the declaration of God's faithfulness. In verse 54, He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary reflects now on how the Lord has remembered her, and she thinks now about how the Lord remembers in his mercy all the humble. And she projects that now, that scope, through her child, God now is going to accomplish the greatest testimony of His faithfulness, He's going to fulfill what He promised, not just to her, but what what He promised 1,400 years before her time. What He promised to Abraham and His offspring forever. This is really what's generating this whole song for her. This is the reason... That she's really praising God. This is what she's basing everything else on. She's celebrating God's goodness. Because he remembers his promise. All the way back to Abraham. Which itself has not yet been fulfilled. She says. This promise that God would send a descendant. This is the promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. God would send a seed. A descendant. That through him. He would not only save Israel, but all the nations would be blessed through him. In the end, verse 54, this is all in remembrance of his mercy. This is the promise of God showing mercy to Abraham, mercy to Israel, mercy to all who trust in him. This is the promise that Israel would continually return to at their darkest times when things would look so dim, when they thought or might have assumed that God had somehow rejected them because they had been so wicked, because they had turned so far away from God's favor and kindness, when they had forgotten so many of His gifts, when they had turned again to idolatry and they turned again to the allurements of the world, when they would be overwhelmed by oppressors, overwhelmed by enemies and enemy nations. 
they would continually come back and remember that there was a promise that was given. And they would trust in that. No matter how bad things got, God would keep His word. Even Abraham had to believe this because he was a hundred years old before his first child was born. It was a miracle. Had to be a miracle. And yet he believed, even when all reason might have told him otherwise. The scripture says, because he believed, God credited him that with righteousness. God credited him with righteousness. This isn't like the Nigerian who wrote you the email this week promising to credit your bank account with $3 million. This is real, you see. God really does this. God really credits to your account righteousness that isn't your own. Abraham believed the promise of God. And he stood before God, therefore justified. This is the Christmas story. This is what Christmas is really all about. It's about believing the promise of God. Even in the face of of mounting circumstances, all kinds of, of logical suggestions why you shouldn't. All kinds of rationalistic, naturalistic reasons that surround you in the world and want to draw you into that and want to make Christmas really all about that. They want to bring Christmas down to a human level and make it something that's on par with every other celebration of every other religion. They want to boil all those things into one in time or year in celebration across all all religions and all faiths they want to bring it all down and to make it all naturalistic rationalistic christmas rises above and it's really all about you believing god when it doesn't make always so much sense and because you believe god saving you god giving you righteousness that you could never have on your own. That's Christmas. It's the first Christmas song. thought about putting it to a jingle for you, but I'm not really that talented with music. It's good enough to hear it from the Word of God, right? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful, so thankful for our Savior and the way in which He came and the reason for which He came. Lord, I pray that you would help us then as believers that we would walk with a Christmas spirit. That is, no matter what the circumstances, then the humble estate in which we find ourselves, that our trust would be unwavering in your holy name. Lord, I pray for any here, here for whom Christmas has not been about any of these things. For whom... It's all been about naturalistic, humanistic goodness. But Lord, they still doubt you. I pray that they would celebrate Christmas this year with trust, with faith, with believing. So that they could know the Savior and the reason he came. Lord, we ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the blessed name of our Savior. Amen.